0: Okay, so growing up, I have church friends and I have school friends, right? And pretty much, never the twain shall meet. And in third grade, I don't bring up my church, I don't volunteer information because I know everyone thinks my religion is weird. No Christmas, no Easter, no pork, I'm on thin ice. Of course, I'm certain that everyone is going to hell for their pagan beliefs this doesn't make good playground conversation. Plus, there aren't any of us at my school. And so one day, there is. Philip. Sandy blonde hair. Philip. And I like Philip. I like Philip just fine. I do. My family even goes to his family's house for a potluck meal after church occasionally. We play Uno and Risk, Connect Four, everything. But at school, Phillip's uh, Phillips, maybe not the most popular kid. I don't diss him. I don't kick sand in his face, nothing like that. In fact, I picked Phil to be on my team in kickball. Friends, we're friends. But it's tense, right? Then one day, Trudy DeBlakehart, she brings in birthday cupcakes, right? German chocolate. You can smell them tipping you from her mama's good Tupperware container all day. The thing is, whenever anyone has a birthday, Jehovah Witness kids, the Seventh-day Adventist kids, and us, we got to go sit in chairs out in the hall while everyone else has a good time. We're not allowed to participate in this godless festivity, and it sucks. It sucks beyond all measure. But today, we happen to have a substitute teacher who doesn't know anything about me. And it's nearing the end of the day. And finally, our substitute teacher claps her hands together and says, I
1: hear it's someone's birthday.
0: On cue, of course, Phil and the rest of the strange kids, they stand up to say they'll be going into the hallway now. And I watch them go. Phil looks over at me. Hey, hey, you coming? I look at Phil. I look at the substitute teacher. I look at Trudy. I adopt a quizzical, somewhat mystified expression on my face (gasps) coming where? Today on Snap Judgment, call. amazing stories of Benedict Arnold, my name is from Washington understand, I'll never betray you for anything less than a German chocolate cupcake with the coconut sprinkles when you're listening to Snap Judgment Again, with Dean Zakharov, He's commander in the Israeli Defense Forces the spring of 2014. Dean's based in the Palestinian city of Hebron. At the time, he's patrolling neighborhoods, searching houses, making night arrests. Sensitive listeners, please be advised, this story does contain images of war and violence. Stamp Judgment.
2: As a young soldier, Dean started every day in his army trailer with a cheese sandwich.
3: Cream cheese, tomatoes, white bread, sliced cucumbers, and maybe a hard-boiled egg.
2: He was 22 years old and an Israeli soldier. After finishing his cheese sandwich, he'd go out to patrol the streets of the Palestinian city of Hebron.
3: Check people's IDs on the street, stop and frisks, hands up on the wall put your knee in the back of their knee and just start like feeling them up to make sure they don't have anything.
2: In 2014, Fridays were especially busy. At the time, Palestinians all over the territories took to the streets, protesting against precisely the kind of treatment Dean is describing.
3: It's like every week, it's like a Facebook event where everyone comes at the exact same time and starts throwing stones and shooting rubber bullets and flashbang grenades and tear gas.
2: On one of these Fridays, Dean and his soldiers set their sights on a group of stone throwers. Dean sent his soldiers scrambling through the back alleys to arrest them. But one of those guys, one of the stone throwers, was making things difficult.
3: He was sitting on a stoop and he just wasn't, he was a bigger guy. He wasn't letting people take his arms back behind his back. He was like sitting down with his arms stuck to his chest. He's a stocky guy, a bit shorter than me, but well-built. I pointed to my gun and I said, don't make me do something I don't want to do. I need him in his chest and his face. It's my right knee. Until he was like half passed out and a bit bloody. I don't remember if he screamed, I don't remember if he cried, I don't remember if he was silent, I just remember it worked. Like there was a very strong person who was resisting, and then he stopped resisting.
2: Dean grabbed the bloodied man by the back of his neck and put his hands behind his back to handcuff him.
0: You
3: hear those clicks of the Ziplocs. He's kind of bruised up, and then we walked them back in, like, this, like, parade style down the main alley all the way towards the base where there were, like, armored vehicles of the police. I was, like, smiling. We were all happy. We got some action. We did what we had to do.
2: Back then, um, when you beat him up, did you ever think you would get in trouble for it?
3: Did I ever think I would get in trouble for it? Yeah, like... No. I mean, there was violence all the time. That's the most absurd part about this, is that it's something that happens all the time.
2: So if this kind of violence is something that happens all the time, why do you think you remember this incident so clearly? Like, you speak about it with so much detail.
3: Well, like my life has been orbiting around this story for like a year and a half, two years, which was pretty insane. The weirdest part of this story is that I almost went to prison. The Israeli anthem used to get me extremely excited, like goosebumps excited, like this is my home excited.
2: Right after high school, Dean joined an elite infantry unit. It's called the Nahal Brigade. They wore bright green berets and dark red boots. And Dean served in the anti-tank unit. For a year, he trained. He practiced hand-to-hand combat, firing missiles.
3: Seeing things explode in a very general sense.
2: He learned Army Arabic.
3: Stop or I'll shoot Which is just open the door Lift your hands, take your shirt off Turn around, take your pants off Give me the keys to your car Turn the car off, turn the lights on Turn the lights off Um, Men to the right, women to the left
2: And then he was chosen to become a commander
3: And I was like, ah, I've won the lottery This is like the best This is exactly what I wanted
2: even more so when in the summer of 2014, Israel declared war on Gaza. The Israeli army would send Dean's troops to Gaza to find and destroy underground Hamas tunnels.
3: Gaza in like, is like a myth to Israeli society. It's like the hornet's nest. That's what it's called. Kenzrot. It's like out, it's over the, it's out of charted territory. All these guys are absolutely terrified. And again, you have so much responsibility of like the 30 guys that are walking behind you, plus other guys that they put in your squad at the last minute. It's a mess.
2: When his soldiers loaded the bus to Gaza, Dean counted them and made sure they all had their combat gear. Guns, magazines, explosives... And then he tried to make a joke, probably one of the worst of his entire life.
3: (laughs) Probably the the most quiet I've ever gotten after a joke. I read out, like, the list of, like, uh, the people that are supposed to be on the bus. And then after I read out all the names and everyone said here, I said, and those are the names of the fallen. And everyone was quiet but it's on the back of everyone's mind. Like, am I about to be killed in a war right now? To be honest, I accepted it. I said, I'm going to be the officer, and I'm going to walk in front of my platoon, and I'm going to be the first one that walks in front of them. I remember giving this like speech to my uh, soldiers before we went in. And I said, when they shoot rockets at this guy's house and they're shooting rockets at our house and your house and your house, and we're all going in uh, together in order to protect the country, I'm like, let's go kill some terrorists or something like like that.
2: As the bus got closer to the Gaza border, Dean stared out the window in headphones. He was listening on repeat to the song "Riptide" by Vance Joy. He calls it his Gaza song.
3: The most unwar, like the the the, the, it was like if it was in a movie, it would've been like the wrong choice for a soundtrack. So when I listen to that song, then it it's almost comforting to know that, like, it's still, it was me back then when my head was shaved. And that's important to remember because what scares me is that not everyone understands that they have those parts in them, these horrible, dark parts, which can inflict pain and violence.
2: When it was time for them to cross the border, Dean led his troops behind bulldozers that tore through fences in the middle of the night.
3: I was the first one to step in across a fence, and I told myself I'd be the last one to step out.
2: When the sun finally came up, all Dean saw was chaos.
3: Instead of being in, like, strict formation, no one knows where everyone's standing. And people start shooting at buildings, and people are entering from the wrong places, and you almost shoot people from your company because they're standing in the wrong place. It's a mess.
2: Bulldozers were ripping up houses and roads and farmland.
3: There were a lot of, like, just dead animals stuck under the debris, and it smelled horrible. It was hot. So imagine, like like dead farm animals, that smell. Or even the live ones, which are dehydrated and just like walking around and it kind of daze. Cows, camels, donkeys, chickens. That was like a smell that you don't forget.
2: Dean had been on patrol inside Gaza for six long weeks when he heard, over the radio, that there had been a ceasefire. By the end of the war, some 2,200 Palestinians and 67 Israelis had been killed. There's
3: There's a video of me, like, in the bus. When we just got on the bus, I'm, like, riling them up, and we're singing, and we're happy. And I sit back down, and I give, like, a peace sign, and I say, I love you, Mom.
2: Dean's dad was waiting for him at their bus stop in Jerusalem.
3: He saw me, and uh, he was crying, and I was very, like, worked up as well. My parents were scared. They had no idea what to do. Uh, they literally, like, warmed up a schnitzel, and then they cut it for me <laughs> as if I was six years old. <laughs> and they were, like, talking quietly. Like, Dean, is everything okay? Do you want some ketchup? Is everything all right?
2: Dean ate his schnitzel and took a shower. Days passed. Dean slept a lot. He read a lot.
3: Well, the more time that went past, the more I felt the dissonance between me supposed to be feeling like I'm a hero because I was one of the soldiers that was inside. Um, and the incredible guilt and I'm supposed to be feeling so proud right now versus there was so much destruction and horrible things that happened.
2: As he slept, he dreamt of exploding buildings and destruction.
3: And remembering smells and just generally having those scenes run over and over again.
2: In between naps, Dean would sit with his mom. Sometimes they'd chat about what life was like for her while he was fighting across the border. And his mom told him something he couldn't shake.
3: Her housekeeper, who was Palestinian, had a son named Tarek, who was in administrative detention and the accusation of throwing stones in East Jerusalem. So my mom and Tarek's mom, our housekeeper, Majda, they'd get together and like cry and like, where are our sons? What is happening here?
2: And it seems like after Dean's mom told him this story and saw how it affected him, she might've called up their housekeeper, Majda. Because within a few days, Majda invited Dean over for dinner to meet her son, Tarek.
3: I was excited and also I was it seemed like an adventure. Now it's like less, it's like two kilometers away, driving less, but it's like a distance I never traveled for 24 years. And I meet Tarek, we go to the like neighborhood vegetable store, we buy some stuff and then we sit down for dinner. There are like mixed feelings about me being there. Some people are more comfortable, some people are less. It was a beautiful dinner and just a family sitting there. And I was sitting right in front of the door. I'm like asking someone to pass me the rice and we're eating. And then I like take a look at the door and I realized that this is exactly what was happening right before every single time I barged in through a Palestinian door in the middle of their dinner, or in the middle of the night. It's just people's lives being people's lives. And that's where I started, like, a very long process of, like, humanizing. Nothing made sense
2: anymore. Dean didn't talk about it much, except with one close friend. And one day, over beer... He invited Dean to this lecture. It was by a Palestinian, Bassam Armin, who was talking to Israeli students in an auditorium.
3: He has this amazing story of how he came to terms with nonviolence. And one day his daughter was walking home from school. She was around six years old, and she was shot in the head by a border police officer and killed. And he's telling his story, and one of the kids raises his hands, and he asks why is it that an Israeli soldier would shoot a kid in the head? Like, why would that happen? And then from the back of the room, I like raised my hand and I started explaining to them about how I was, my soldiers were in a checkpoint one time and one of my sergeants ordered a soldier to shoot a rubber bullet, which instead of hitting the kid in the leg, hit him in the chest. And while I was telling that story, my voice was shaking and Bassam, What Bassam does after I talk about how soldiers shoot Palestinian kids is that he walks over to me while my voice is shaking with a glass of water and he gives it to me. And I think that, like, I've never been um, worthy of so much compassion, but, like, the fact that he did that um, and then afterwards spoke to me after the lecture and we spoke a bit and he asked me about it my background and what's going on. And he goes, uh, one day you'll join combatants for peace and uh, (laughs) you'll be an activist. (laughs) Like, Bassam, I don't think so.
0: (laughs) It is not over, Snappers. When Dean recovers from his time in the army, he's about to face some big questions. On Snap Judgment, the Turncoat episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Turncoat episode. When last we left, Dean came back from commanding Israeli troops during the war in Gaza. Dean was feeling anything but proud.
3: Started out with uh, one of my best friends, um, and then in front of people, and then I started talking to, I don't even remember how many groups, I mean, students from all over the world, Israelis, you know, go visit them in their kibbutz, or a bunch of, like, uh, hipsters from Tel Aviv, Arab students in in universities to members of parliament.
1: A group of Israeli combat veterans calling themselves Breaking the Silence Um, is now calling into question the official Israeli government version of events in Gaza versus the shoot first,
0: ask questions later reality.
2: Dean started telling his stories about his time in the army with a group called Breaking the Silence. In Hebrew it translates to Shovrim sounds Shtika. It's
3: like an idiom. It's like a it's just like a code word where you don't even have to add anything more like politicians will just throw it out there like oh you and breaking the silence and like <laughs> enough said. So yeah, people know what it is.
2: And a lot of people really don't like it including a lot of people in the government. There's a law called the Shovrim Shtikala, which bans the group from speaking in public high schools.
3: And it's a small organization. Back then it was like 10 people. Literally the only message of the group is, this is what we did, it's wrong. And I think that it's so controversial because it cuts straight to the core of our denial.
2: Dean's own testimony was so powerful, the director of Shovrim Shikha asked him to be their spokesperson.
3: <laughs>
2: and knowing he might be targeted by any number of people, Dean agreed to take the job. And about half a year into it, he was out with friends in Jerusalem. It was a Thursday night. He was headed to a bar when he pulled out his phone and clicked on a Facebook notification.
3: I was tagged on Facebook and see this video, and I, like, watch the video.
2: The video shows Dean's testimony in front of a big group. The horns you hear are protesters trying to drown out Dean's voice. Dean is describing that time in Hebron, when he kneed and beat unconscious the young Palestinian man who was resisting arrest. And then a man with a scruffy beard and fade haircut with the title Team Commander comes on the screen and says in Hebrew, it never happened. Another guy (laughs) with the title Fighter to the Company says, where did you come up with this stuff? And then, one by one, 12 soldiers look straight into the camera.
0: Dean, I was a fighter in your unit and you're a liar. Dean,
2: I saw your testimony and you're a liar. Dean, I was your crew commander and you're a
1: liar.
3: And just one after another and another one and another one and another one and another one.
2: And these are guys
3: you know. Some of these guys followed me into Gaza. These are not guys that I know. Some of these guys were like guys that I was shot at with. I've been to some of their houses. I have spoke to their parents. Yeah, I thought we were close. And the video is them calling me a liar. And then it ends with some text saying you're either a liar or a criminal.
2: Dean sent the video to his team at Shtika. They told him to chill for the night. They'd come up with a response the next day.
3: I think it's safe to say I probably got drunk. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> uh-huh. But I'm like watching it and I'm watching the views climb up and the likes exploding and shares exploding. And it was like an overnight sensation.
2: How many likes? and Like, was it thousands? Was it it-
3: thousands, Thousands, if not tens of thousands, it was everywhere it got to the news it was it was big, and this thing keeps going and going on the internet, it, like doesn't stop. People are like writing posts and it's becoming viral and suddenly, like the security minister comments on it, and then the justice minister says that I should be investigated
2: and is this all on Facebook
3: Facebook and Twitter.
2: Within 24 hours, the video reached airwaves and TV stations. Both the justice minister and the defense minister of Israel used social media to say Dean should be investigated.
3: And I was like 25, 24, 25, and the justice minister knows my name.
2: And a few days later, Dean got called into a police station to be investigated for aggravated assault.
3: A felony which you can sit in jail for.
2: And did you have the choice of taking back your testimony? Like, could you have just said, actually, I didn't really do that, stop this investigation?
3: Yeah, my lawyer um, told me that you should just shut up and it will go away. Now, obviously, they thought that they'd investigate me and I'd remain silent. And then they'd be able to say, well, he chickened out or he's a liar.
2: So Dean has this choice to make. Allow the country to believe he's a liar or prove to the country that he's a criminal? If the country believed he was a liar, it would undermine his entire organization, Shovrim Shikha, and all of its veterans' testimonies. But if he maintained that he did assault someone, that would make him a criminal. He took a night to think about his options.
3: But even, I didn't even need to sleep on it. Like, I knew what my decision was.
2: It was April 2017 when Dean and some colleagues drove down to the investigation office and declared, in front of police investigators, that he assaulted a Palestinian man.
3: And then it becomes big on the news. And Sane became notorious for beating up Palestinians or lying or being a criminal. So it's this weird vortex where everything is turning on its head.
2: So while Dean's trying to convince the court that he's a criminal, the state attorney's office is working to prove that he's a liar. Police investigators interviewed his former soldiers. They also went to the Palestinian territories and found the Palestinian man Dean said he beat up. His name, Hassan Julani. And Julani says, No way. Dean never beat him. He says he was not left bleeding. He never lost consciousness. He never had a bruise or even a scratch. It was enough evidence to close the investigation. Dean was at the Chauvrim Shtika office when he got the news.
3: So they're saying I'm not being put on trial. okay? And that because I'm a liar and the thing didn't happen at, at all. We're sitting there, we're all kind of shocked, we don't know where to begin. And then we realize that what we have to do right now is... Is... The investigation which the police weren't willing to do. And we have to start collecting evidence and trying to find witnesses and the victim and, and, and prove that what I was talking about was the truth.
2: So you have to prove that you committed this crime.
3: Exactly. I don't know if I wasn't afraid of going to jail as much as I just blocked out the possibility that I might actually sit behind bars.
2: But it was a real possibility. Like you could.
3: Oh, no, it was a real possibility.
2: First, Dean and his colleagues got a hold of the photo of Julani, the man who said Dean never beat him up.
3: And I look at the picture and I say, okay, this guy is familiar, but it's not the Palestinian that I'm talking about from this testimony
2: the state had questioned the wrong Palestinian man.
3: And now we know that they don't have the real victim.
2: So, Dean brings this information to journalists. And soon, in an interview with a TV reporter, Julani, the wrong Palestinian man, says Dean never arrested him. It was some other guy. As the week went by, Dean brought more evidence to journalists.
3: I'm literally like the opening story of every news channel, all
0: three of them. But still,
2: it wasn't enough for the court to reopen the investigation. Dean needed to find incontrovertible evidence. He knew that there was this Israeli group called Betzelem. It's a human rights organization that, among many other things, gives cameras to Palestinians to document daily life in the territories. He gave them a range of dates, and they comb through every piece of footage between those dates.
3: And we get a phone call, and I get rushed over to the lawyer's office. Uh, they open the computer to show me a video of right after the arrest as we're walking out of the alley. And you just see this. This is the parade that I was talking about.
2: Remember how Dean, after he need the guy and beat him, kind of parades him through the streets? The video shows that.
3: And then suddenly there's me and another guy holding the guy that I need, and I recognize him, and he's bruised in the face. My immediate response was that I broke out crying I kept saying, sons of bitches, sons of bitches. For months, I was being told that I remembered something very vividly and I was being told that it didn't happen. Think about one of the things you're most ashamed of doing. You find a reason for talking about it and speaking out about it and owning up to it. And instead of a regular normal response to that, what you're told is that it didn't happen. And when so many people start telling you that something that you're talking about didn't happen, then you start doubting yourself too. It's like, all right, how are we going to get this to as many people as we can? Uh, We put out the video and either immediately afterwards or a couple of days after, uh, the state attorney's office say that they're reopening the investigation. For me, it's a win, but the wins are always relative.
2: Relative, because no one actually admitted to wrongly accusing Dean of lying. And also relative, because when Dean was called a liar, it was on the front page of almost every paper. But the fact that Dean found evidence that he was right.
3: They're burying it in, like, I don't know, page eight in, like, a small little rectangle without a picture. Like, oh, by the way, they reopened the investigation because of
2: overwhelming proof. So, Dean took his evidence and went to one of Israel's investigative journalism TV shows, Hamakor, which translates to The Source. For a year, Journalists from the program showed up at Dean's apartment. A few days before the show was released, the state attorney's office, who was interviewed for the show, released a statement admitting the mistake of interrogating the wrong Palestinian man.
3: And that's huge. It's the state attorney's office. Like, it's like... Very powerful people with a lot to lose who did not want to admit their fault.
2: Did you ever find the right Palestinian?
3: Well, New Year's Eve 2018, about to go out to a party, and I'm told that there's going to be an interview with the guy who I actually beat up.
2: Israeli TV journalists had found the right Palestinian man. His name is Faisal al
3: And I sit there watching the news, and they're interviewing this guy's mother. She's talking about the trauma that her son went through. And they're interviewing him, and he's saying, you think one guy beat me up? And, And the second you have a Palestinian perspective inside of that, you realize how ridiculous it is and and I had to look this guy in the eyes and hear his account of it and hear his mother talking about what I did to her son.
2: Did you ever interact with him or talk to him? No. Do you want to?
3: No. I don't think he'd want to forgive me and I don't think it'd be a fair thing to ask for.
0: Before the state closed their investigation Thiem left his job with Shofim Shtika and went to work as a spokesperson for Amen Oda the leader of the joint list Oda is calling for a shared future with the full and equal participation of Palestinian citizens in Israel and to the Israeli occupation and the establishment of an independent Palestinian state special thanks to the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture and KLW's Spiritual Edge podcast this story would not have been possible without their support. The original score for this piece was by Pat Masini Miller. It was produced by Shana Sheely. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, we teach you how to soar. For real. On Snap Judgment, the Turncoat episode continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment's orbiting Hall of Justice. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the turncoat episode. My name is Lynn Washington, and our next story comes to us from a nun. A nun who used her wings to fly, but not in the direction you'd expect. Snap Judgment.
1: I was very involved with my parish, and I went to uh, Catholic school. It was the mid-1940s
4: in an Irish neighborhood of Brooklyn, and little Eileen O'Toole was an obedient Catholic schoolgirl. And our whole neighborhood was very Catholic. There were a few exceptions, like the family who owned the candy store down the block.
1: There was a Jewish family, two Jewish little boys the same age as I, whose parents owned a candy store. I would go there every day and buy a little bit of candy on the way back to school after lunch. And it was Stan and Isaac. Isaac wrote the most most science books in the world, and Stan became the editor of Newsday.
4: So she would see
1: Isaac Asimov, the future science
4: fiction author, and his brother Stan, the future editor of Newsday. But in general, Catholics were her world. And there was a heavy weight on her young shoulders to devote her life to God. If she did become a nun, her parents and the whole neighborhood would be proud. And they would be set,
1: not only in this life, but forever. I really think that they thought that was their entrance into heaven, if they gave one of their children to God. I thought, why not give it a try? Maybe I would like it. So Eileen gave it a try. She decided to become a nun.
4: Her little Brooklyn neighborhood, her mom and dad, they rejoiced. And then the morning came for her to go to the convent. And for the first time, she began to
1: think about herself. And I walked out of my room, and I was trembling. Why am I doing this? How did I get myself into this situation? And all my relatives were there to say goodbye, and the priest who was helping me put me into the car right away. And the car took off, and I was on my way.
4: Walking into the convent, she comforted herself with the hope that it would only be for a short time, that she could
1: leave when she wanted to. When I first entered, I thought that I could just walk out. They held on to us and they watched every move. We were out in the country and there was no way that we could go anywhere. At night I used to hear the Long Island Railroad horn blow and i tell you, going to bed at night, I'd cry my eyes out. I just wanted to get on that train. And then... Something in her snapped. And after prayers one afternoon, Eileen took off. I said to myself, I'm out of here. And I didn't know that they could see me from the window where they were watching us. I remember holding up my skirt, running up that long, long road. And I nearly made it to the gate. (laughs) But then the car came and got me and told me to come back.
4: Two nuns motioned for her to get in the car, and they drove her back up the hill. For four years, Eileen lived under the vigilant eyes of the superior nuns in the stony, regimented mother house. And she was finally assigned to a church in New York City.
1: This could be her chance to escape. I was assigned to Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was really very, very poor and very tough.
4: Eileen was told that she would work directly under the mother superior, Sister Anna Germain,
1: she was nervous. So I went up the stairs, and there is this woman sitting in a, a leather lounge chair, which was totally forbidden. You had to sit on a, a straight chair all the time. And she had the nicest smile, and she welcomed me and said, Welcome, dear. Now you make yourself at home. And I was just taken back because usually they were just giving orders to you go downstairs. Do this, do that. She was so nice. So that was my first meeting with Sister Anna Jermaine.
4: And Sister Anna had her own philosophy. Do
1: what you need to do to help the poor. Don't worry about the rules. She said now tomorrow I want you to go to this house, but you're not to tell anybody else that I'm sending you there. Make believe you're going for rolls to the local bakery and bring food to this house or bring money to this house. And I was her feet. And my main job was to walk the streets after teaching and help the poor. It was technically against the rules for Eileen to leave the convent alone. But she was out there every day doing Sister Anna's work. One of my first remembrances is that um, of a a beautiful uh, lady. I think she was a Spanish mother with about four children. She was on welfare. And she told me that uh, the welfare person would come to the house, the man, and he said, unless you give me the favors of your body, I won't give you the welfare check. I just told sister, I said, I have to be there every Wednesday. So when he comes, he sees me standing right next to her. And then he'll give her the check. And that was one of the first things I did. That was definitely against the rule.
4: Breaking the rules became kind of a game. Like when Eileen noticed that the kids in her classroom didn't have the shoes they needed for their confirmation. She knew just where to find the funds she needed.
1: I said to the mothers, don't worry, don't worry, I will buy them for you. I said, I know where the money is from the Sunday collections, and I'm going to run in and grab money for these shoes. So I grabbed a bunch of money, and I said to the kids, follow me like Pied Piper down the avenue. We were all holding hands, and I went into the shoe store, and I said, outfit these children in with shoes and socks and then I told Sister Anna what I did and she laughed, she thought that was funny but I had money left over so she said give them a party, you can't put the money back in the basket under Sister Anna, Eileen didn't want to run what an eye opening I felt so good about the things that I was doing but Sister Anna was
4: getting older one day she fell ill and she was taken to the hospital and she never came back to the convent Eileen was transferred
1: to a wealthy parish in Long Island. And everything was rules and regulations. I remember the Superior telling me, you enter the convent to take care of the nuns. You didn't enter the convent to take care of people or the poor. I was so upset, I I didn't know what to do, and all I could think of was get out of the convent. And I went to Montauk. Montauk Point is the farthest end of Long Island. And you climb up and you, the cliffs and you see the ocean, the wild ocean. I had a veil on and, um, you know, my habit. And I climbed up to the top of the cliffs and I said, I'm really not happy. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want this to be my life. And I looked out at the ocean. It was hitting against the point. And out on the horizon, it was calm. And I'll never forget the feeling I went, oh my gosh, look how calm. God is telling me, that's okay, you'll be calm, you could do it, everything will be all right. That's the moment I made up my mind. She
4: always thought she might not last in the convent, and now she was sure. She was going
1: to break her vows. Uh, You can't leave the convent unless you have a dispensation from your vows. And it's a serious, serious thing to break your vows against God. So... What holy nun wants to break her vows against God? Well, then I had to go back and tell people, and that was tough. It wasn't just
4: her vow she was breaking. She was going to let down the whole family, most of all her mother. She went home for a family dinner to break the news and hoped they'd be
1: understanding. My sisters wouldn't tell her. They were afraid my mother would have a heart attack. I said, Mom, I'm really unhappy, and she just froze. She was standing at the sink. And I said, I I want to leave the convent. She said, leave this house. I don't want to see you again. That moment was horrific, just terrible. And it went down from there. Her family stopped
4: talking to her. She had nothing that she needed to live on her own. No money, no job, no place to live. Her head was shaved. She had only her nun's clothing. And then help began to appear.
1: If you want to know how God took care of me, I cannot believe it, how it really happened. First of all, I had no clothes. She met an older couple who would take her out for dinner. They loved nuns, and they saw that Eileen was a good person. So she let them in on her hopes of escape. I called them my angels. That older couple, they owned a woman's dress shop. They had clothes in their car as samples. They gave me 12 outfits. Then she was interviewed by Newsday about her charity work.
4: And after the interview, Eileen confessed her plan to the journalist and
1: explained that she still had no job and no money. She goes home and she tells her editor, he was Stan Asimov, the fella I grew up with. The editor, Stan Asimov, said he knew Eileen. He said, I'm the little Jewish boy who lived across the street from you, and we grew up together. I could not believe it. He promised her a job at Newsday. He said, "Uh, when you leave, come to the personnel, sign in, the job is waiting. So
4: early one morning when no one was looking, Eileen stepped out of the convent with
1: $80 in her pocket and boarded a bus to New York City. And I was in full, you know, nun regalia. And I got on that bus and I went into, I think it was Grand Central Station, and I went to, I think it was a movie house And I changed. I took off my nun habit put on clothes, then I stayed and watched a movie. Eileen took the job at Newsday. Eventually, she went back to
4: teaching. She rented a sparsely furnished apartment and got married and had a daughter. She still goes to church, and when the collection basket comes around, she thinks about what
1: Sister Anna would do. I don't always like to give in church, as my husband knows. Uh, because I gave my life and, But what I do is I'll just give a $20 bill To somebody here or there Or wherever uh, and I, I just think that You know, faith is a great thing In all religions And kindness to others And that's, that's the way I feel in life
0: Big thanks to Eileen O'Toole for sharing her story with the Snap. You can find out more about Eileen's story and her book at Sister Anna's Feet on our website, snapjudgment.org. Of course, that piece was produced by none other than our own Anna Sussman. It's that time And if you missed Even a moment With Snap Storytelling Magic You know what to do Get the Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast Wherever you get Your podcast And fly your Snap flag high And understand this Snap is brought to you By the team That would never take money From the offering plate Make some noise For the choir boy himself The Uber producer Mr. Mark Ristich Receiving Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Liz Mack, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Lauren Newsom, Versa <sighs> Dodge, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, John Facile, Mika Singh, and Teo DeKai. And even though this is not the news, no way this is the news. In fact, you could deny your own faith just to eat a chocolate cupcake and feel somewhat guilty about it all these years later, and you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.